Well, Merry Christmas. Really? <laughs> really? Okay, we could... I mean, we believe in Jesus, right? Okay, Merry Christmas. There we go, there we go. It's going to be a good morning. This is week number three of Advent, so this is our third week in our Advent series we've entitled uh, Comfort and Joy. And we see the words here on the sides, but let's be honest. Comfort and joy is really, really elusive. Sometimes it's the little things. Uh, Somebody says the wrong word in the wrong way at the wrong time. Sometimes it's the big things. But comfort and joy, it's hard to sustain, hard to hold on to, hard to experience over time, especially in adversity, pain, and trauma. Yet I have been really encouraged. I have been blown away as a pastor lately by evidences of the comfort and joy that I have seen in people in hard places, in places that are actually surprising, in places you wouldn't expect it. And let me unpack that to set up where we're going today. Let's take Vic and Leslie. Vic and Leslie Trotwine, who were just on the platform, highly competent people. They're both Ivy League graduates. Vic is an engineer. Leslie's a pediatrician. But they left their careers and all the material comforts of, uh, comforts of living in the suburbs to go minister among the poorest of the poor, rescuing children in the Dominican Republic. And and they're down there and they learn the language and the ministry's going really well and after years they're they're kind of reaching their, their peak because they've been there for a while and suddenly Leslie's diagnosed with breast cancer. And they have to come home. So they came home 18 months ago, came back here and have been a part of our church for the last 18 months. And now, thankfully, Leslie's cancer is in remission. They're good to go. They're all uh, cleared and and ready to head back in in just a couple of weeks. But when they first came 18 months ago, man, that was scary. They didn't know what to expect. And, And the treatment and the protocols that were assigned, it was going to be daunting. But over the last 18 months, while they've been among us, they have exuded a a comfort and joy that has been so wonderful, so refreshing. And I remember uh, Leslie, I don't know if if the two of us were right there or over there after one of our uh, services, and she was laughing, and she took off her hat and said, see what I look like, Rob, without hair? I mean, who laughs like that? Only doctors do that. It's just no big deal. She'd lost all her hair. Boy, talk about comfort and joy. Then there's Greg and Rhonda Ford. Many of you know the story of Greg and Rhonda Ford. Uh, uh, Greg, uh, early on in his life, battled cancer. Cancer went into remission, but it has come back. So for the last 14 years, Greg has been battling spinal cancer. And each year, it's just gotten worse and worse. So this week, Greg will have his eighth and ninth surgeries of the year. 
and his surgery on Thursday will be 8 to 10 hours. Already this year, Greg has spent over 150 days in the hospital. Now this past Thursday, do you remember how cold it was? Uh, when I, I, I left my house a little before 6 to, to, to come here to teach our men's Bible study, our, our men's huddle, which I've been doing for 15, 16, uh, 17 years, it was two below zero. And I remember thinking, and you tend to do this in those moments, why in the world did I ever get myself into this? You know, it, this is so early, it is so cold, it is so crazy. And I got here, and guess what? Greg Ford was here. Sitting at his table where he always used to sit in his wheelchair, laughing, smiling, talking with the guys at his table. Now, Greg can't walk. He can't get anywhere without difficulty. But regardless of how early it was, regardless of how cold it was, regardless of how big the hassle it was, Greg was here. And while we'll all be in our homes celebrating Christmas with our, our families, Greg and Rhonda will be in the city in the hospital with their kids. And Rhonda just a couple days ago said to me, Rob, I think this is going to be the first time I've missed my, my church's Christmas Eve service in forever. And then she went on to say, but here's how we're praying. We're praying that we'll be able to have a Christmas Eve service in our room. And that we'll be able to lift up Jesus um, and, and talk to uh, our, our caregivers about Jesus. Really, Rhonda? And, and she went on and about how they've been praying about this and they want to they seize what Christmas gives them to lift up Jesus. Now, are Greg and Rhonda scared? You bet. Ten-hour surgery? But when you talk to them, you discover an incredibly deep well of comfort and joy in ongoing, an overwhelmingly difficult situation. Then there's Sahar. Sahar may be in this service. Sahar, are you here? If you haven't gotten to know Sahar, man, I want to encourage you to get to know Sahar. Sahar is a refugee. She's an immigrant. She's from Iraq, and she has come to Christ. She's been a part of our church for the last uh, couple of years. And her life has not turned out how she had planned. And it's gotten very, very complicated. And now she's here in the United States and she can't find a job. So often after one of our services, uh, she'll come down this aisle and I'll have the privilege over the last couple of weeks, just the last couple of months of praying with her that God would provide a job for her. And I'm struck as we pray and as I talk to her how big her smile is. Her smile seems to be as big as this room. I can't get my mind around what her life has been like. But I got to tell you, man, am I impressed by her comfort and joy. Uh, one more. Just a couple of days ago, I met with a woman. I'll call her Susan. Susan is living in an inexpensive hotel that she can't really afford. 
because her husband has made some really bad decisions and she can't be at home. Now Christmas always intensifies pain and loss and dysfunction. And Susan knows it. And we've been talking about it. Yet I, I marvel at her steadiness, her comfort and joy. So I, I want you to look at one of these walls. Just look at one of these walls. And I want you to understand these aren't just words. These are realities that turn ordinary people who have been gouged by the hard edges of living life in a sinful fallen world into heroes who stand strong in pain and exude comfort and joy. Now today, I want to show you the source of that comfort and joy that you might taste and see and that their experience might be your experience. So we're going to go to a passage in the Old Testament that we've been in for this series. And amazingly, what I want you to understand is this source of that comfort and joy that we see here on the wall is really bundled up into two words. And so this morning, I'm going to preach on just two words from one of the most beloved, ancient, beautiful Christmas prophecies of all time. So turn with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to look at verses 6 and 7. If you want to grab a Bible in front of you, it's page 683. We're going to read these two verses to get a little context. I'm going to make a couple of preliminary comments and then we're going to unpack these two words of verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Lon spent the last two weeks preaching on these two titles, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. A couple things I want you to notice. First of all, this famous prophecy was written 700 years seven centuries before Christ. In and of itself, that makes this prophecy supernatural. But when you couple it with all the other messianic prophecies in the book of Isaiah, not to mention the rest of the Old Testament, this is a very strong, compelling argument 
for the accuracy, the reliability, the supernatural nature of the Bible, and I'm assuming that. In these two verses, second, Isaiah describes what we call as the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ as if they were one event. And this can get confusing when you read verses like ours unless you understand that the Old Testament prophets did not differentiate between the first coming and the second coming. That wasn't revealed to them. They didn't see it. They didn't understand that. So, for example, at the beginning of verse 6, when we read a child is born, a son is given to us, that's obviously a prophecy about the first coming of Christ. But then as we go through verse 6, and then when we get into verse 7, it changes and we move into prophecy about the second coming, the future coming of Christ. Number 3, then at the end of verse 6, we have these four descriptive titles of Jesus, of the promised Messiah. Two words each, four of them, two words each, of who this child, who this Jesus really is. And today we're going to look at the third, Everlasting Father, which is of the four the most confusing because as Trinitarians, as, as people who believe in, in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, uh, different yet fully God, we, we come to this and we reserve the term Father for God the Father and we refer to Jesus, the second person of the triune God, as God the Son. And so we wrestle with how can Jesus, and Jesus is the one being prophesied here, be called Father, be God the Father? And the answer is, Jesus is not God the Father. This is not a Trinitarian statement. Father is used as a metaphor. Isaiah is saying Jesus, the Messiah, will be Father-like. Everlasting Father means eternally Father-like. Now, he could have said here, everlasting warrior, warrior-like. He could have said everlasting king, king-like. Uh, but he didn't because here in the midst of these three other titles, he wanted to emphasize the Messiah's compassion, his love for his children, for his people. Uh, so think of it this way, like the best of human fathers. What Isaiah is telling us of Jesus is that Jesus provides security, as human fathers do, stability, as human fathers do, uh, guidance, support, nurture, as human fathers do. And because Jesus is eternal, he will do this forever. He will not change, he will not weaken, he will not give up. Now, I want to go a little deeper. And I want to unpack what this means according to Isaiah. What Isaiah tells us about Jesus. And in particular, what he tells us about Jesus as the everlasting father-like Lord. 
And what I see is, according to Isaiah, this means three things about Jesus. First, it means that Jesus redeems. It means Jesus saves. It means Jesus forgives, rescues. The everlasting Father-like love of Jesus here is, the ever, is a reference to the everlasting, redempting, rescuing, forgiving love of Jesus. And in these two words, this two-word title, we have therefore the seeds of the gospel that's revealed in the New Testament. This is why, for example, look at the beginning of verse 6, Jesus will be born at Christmas. This is why he will be both a child emphasizing his humanity and a son emphasizing his deity because as man Jesus will die, but as God he will fully satisfy the righteous demands of the law. He will fully satisfy the righteous and holy justice demands of his heavenly father. So father-like love is Jesus' willing self-sacrificial death for the redemptive good of undeserving, sinful, fallen people like you and like me. And you're thinking, okay, Rob, where did you get this? And what I want to show you is this is exactly what Isaiah says of Jesus. So let's go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a divine commentary on this term. Let's pick it up in verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Now this is another messianic prophetic passage. This is a reference to Jesus. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, as many of you know, is a prophetic description of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. It points 700 years before it happened to the fact that the Messiah, that the Son of God, that Jesus would die. But what I want you to understand is Isaiah 53 is also a vivid description of Isaiah 9:6, everlasting Father, the Father-like love of Jesus. So you want to know what everlasting father means, this confusing uh, title in Isaiah 9-6? Isaiah 53 explains it. Because Isaiah 53 gets to the central aspect of it. And I've got to tell you, for me, this is breathtaking. Because when I read Isaiah 9-6 in light of Isaiah 53, I realize that there is no such thing as true, active love that isn't sacrificial. I mean, that's what any mother with young children knows. That's frankly what any mother knows with any children, any age. There's no such thing as true, active love that isn't sacrificial. 
And Isaiah is saying that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. He made the ultimate sacrifice. Look at verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace fell upon him. This is holy ground. Isaiah is predicting, he is prophesying that Jesus will die in our place as our substitute for our sin. Why? Well, look at the end of verse 5. By his wounds we are healed. Now that does not refer to physical healing. It does not refer to being healed from cancer. The context won't allow this. This is a reference to spiritual healing. It's a metaphor for forgiveness. The context demands this. So Christ died to rescue us, to heal us from our sin. And if you look at the front end of verse 5, that's why Isaiah uses the words transgressions and iniquities. This is all about uh, our spiritual lives, not our physical lives. So Jesus died on the cross to bring spiritual healing, forgiveness, righteousness, redemption to, to his children, to the children who believe, the children who receive him as the Messiah and the Savior and the Lord. Now the point is, this is where comfort and joy begins. Comfort and joy begins in Isaiah 53, and it was prophesied 700 years before Jesus was born. Now, not the superficial experience of comfort and joy. You know, you win a game. But the deep-seated, sustaining comfort and joy, it's not ultimately a function of your circumstances. It's a function of your Savior, of your faith in your Savior, uh, of knowing that, that because Jesus died for you, you are forgiven. You are righteous in God's sight. You have been adopted into God's forever family. You have been accepted and you are always, always loved. Not because of what you have done or what you deserve, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Now, uh, think about this relative to comfort and joy. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter if it's cancer or unemployment, or rejection, or desertion, or family dysfunction, or uh, something else, uh, tragedy, bad stuff. You experience comfort and joy. And that gets filed under faith. Faith in the Father-like love of your Savior, who because of his sacrifice, because of his death, has rescued you from the penalty of sin. It is completely and forever taken away. Is continuing to rescue you in this life from the power of sin as you become more like Christ and one day will deliver you forever from the presence of sin. The experience then of comfort and joy is a faith thing. 
And it starts with Isaiah 53. It's knowing you're forgiven. It's knowing you're loved. It's knowing you've been made right, righteous in God's sight. And it's living in light of what Christ has done. Otherwise, you're only as good as your circumstances. And your religion will always get reduced to self-improvement. And the reality is you and I need death and resurrection. Now let me go on. The father-like love of Jesus also means he cares for you. He cares about you and he cares for each and every one of you. To call Jesus everlasting father is to say Jesus will always, always, always be loving. It's to say Jesus will never put you down. Jesus will never put you on hold. He's never going to tweet or post something you don't want him to. He will never give up on you. He will never stop loving you. He will never turn his back on you. He will never distance himself from you. He will never move on to someone more interesting. He will never move on to someone more spiritual. He will never move on to someone with fewer problems than you. He will always be a father to you. He will always see you through. He will never abandon you. Your pride will not dissuade him. Your fearfulness will not hinder him your lack of belief and faith will not defeat him a father never gives up on his children everlasting father now let me show you how isaiah pictures this fleshes this out go back to isaiah chapter 40 isaiah chapter 40 in verses 9 10 and 11 You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here's your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. Now we have it. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. Now underline, highlight, circle verse 11. This is another beautiful prophetic statement, a picture of the father-like love of Jesus. And here the emphasis in Isaiah 40 and verse 11 is on Jesus' tenderness, his gentleness, his compassion, his intimacy, his presence his grace, his love. Twice in John chapter 10, Jesus will say, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. This is exactly Isaiah's prophecy here. Now think about this. Verse 11 means Jesus will always, always defend you as his child. He will always, always protect you. 
If you know Jesus, if you've said yes to Jesus, if you're trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Jesus, the prophet tells us, will hold you in his arms. He will carry you close to his heart. He will gently lead you. And you know what you'll be tweeting? You know what you'll be posting? You know what you'll be experiencing? Comfort and joy. And it's rooted in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. It's rooted in the shepherding and the compassion and the care of your Savior because you are a man, you are a woman, you are a student, and it doesn't matter what's going on around you. You know your Savior adores you. That's your identity. You know you are loved. So when I ask myself the question, okay, how do I understand what Isaiah 9-6, Everlasting Father, means? I go to Isaiah 53, and I see it means that Jesus redeems. And I go to Isaiah 40-11, and I see, man, it, it means he cares. He cares that there's an incredible tenderness. There's an incredible love. And boy, talk about the comfort and joy. Now i got to tell you a story. Uh, tomorrow is uh, Rhonda and my sixth wedding anniversary. We've been married now six years. We lost our uh, first spouses to cancer after decades of marriage. So we are celebrating our sixth anniversary tomorrow. And six years in a step family and all that, and it, and we just have so much to be thankful for. But i got to tell you, I really blew it. I forgot it. And not only did I forget it, I did something really stupid, really bad, that I, I hate to admit, I hate to even tell you. I, I, I scheduled... My routine colonoscopy <laughs> for tomorrow. <laughs> the only thing worse would have been scheduling Rhonda's. And you know what that means is for the rest of the day, I can't eat. We can't go out for dinner tonight. I'm not going to feel like it probably tomorrow. I just totally forgot, totally forgot our anniversary. And when I told Rhonda, you know what she said? Well, she said, Rob, that's just great. You can walk home. <laughs> now, look at verse 11 again. You and I are going to forget things. We're going to forget big things. We're going to fail to come through with words or cards or gifts or to be there. We're just going to blow it. We're going to forget it. But Jesus Christ will never, ever forget you. He will not allow you to fall through the cracks. 
He will not, as I said earlier, put you on hold. He will not ignore you. He will never get too busy for you. And my problem is I've just been too busy. And frankly, I've been scheduling and rescheduling this stupid colonoscopy all fall. And man, did I blow it. But Jesus is the perfect everlasting father who will always, always shepherd his children, always care for you. And it's not your job, it's not your money, it's not your success, it's not your kids, it's not your house, it's not your car, it's not your assets that provide ultimate comfort and joy. It's believing verse 11 and living it. It's knowing that my Jesus holds me in his arms. And boy, does that make a huge difference in pain. Third, this Isaiah 9, 6, father-like love also means that Jesus not only redeems and not only cares, it means that Jesus transforms. So to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior means that he hasn't just saved you, man, he's commissioned you. And he's given you gifts and abilities, spiritual gifts and, and, and abilities and, and certain set of circumstances and certain set of opportunities and a, a certain family and certain neighbors and co-workers and on and on. And he's given you his spirit and he is in the process of changing you from the inside out so that you might serve him and honor him and lift him up. And you have no idea how he's going to use you, no idea what he wants to do through you because he wants to use you to make disciples and make disciples. He wants to use you to change your world. Now you may not feel significant. You may feel inadequate. You may feel like the kingdom of God is carried by people who are better or more gifted or less busy or, or whatever. But I got to tell you, based on the authority of God's word, Jesus Christ is in the process of transforming you. And he will use you. And he is using you. But I want you to hear me in this. Man, hear me in this. One of the main ways he transforms you, one of the main ways he, he, he changes you is through trials, difficulty, and pain. And because he's father-like in his love, when you get upset, when you wander off the path, when you uh, want to take your football and go home and do it your way and according to your agenda, he, as a father-like lover of your soul, will discipline you and bring you back to make you more and more like him. You see, Jesus Christ died to make you pure, but he gives you trials and tests and tribulation to make you mature. And fathers always want their children to grow. So turn to Isaiah chapter 41. I'll conclude with this. Here we see this transformational aspect of the gospel. Isaiah 41 verse 14. Do not be afraid, O warm Jacob, O little Israel, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sludge. I preached on this about a year ago. Um, new and sharp with many teeth, you will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. 
You will winnow them, the wind will pick them up, a gale will blow them away, but you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. This is an Old Testament picture of the transforming power of the gospel. The glorious paradox and promise of living by grace, living by faith, living by the gospel, living in the light of our Father's love and how he will change us. And he's changing us now. He will change us when we are in his presence forever. And to the extent you see yourself as weak, you see yourself as little in God's sight, you will lean into, you will lean on, you will cast yourself upon Christ's strength and in the process we will be changed and empowered to live for him. But our power is always derived from another, from the Holy Spirit. Now look at verse 14, these terms worm and little do not mean we are weak or do not mean rather we are worthless, they mean we are weak, we are helpless. And overall, they point to the promise here that as weak as we are, God is in the process, Jesus is in the process of transforming us into his uh, children who will prevail, who will triumph. Because that power comes from God. Okay, we're back at the beginning. Now look at the words, the two words, comfort and joy. Think about them. They're elusive. The experience of comfort and joy is elusive. It may last for some of you about two minutes today. But it's abundantly freely available in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the source. And it's abundantly and freely available to all who will believe. And who will understand that when Isaiah describes Jesus as being fatherlike in his love, he's describing Jesus as the one who is radically redeeming. He is the one who is comprehensively caring. And he is the one who is totally transforming. That's our Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this season. I thank you for the wonder and the advent of your Son. We praise you and we worship you for all you have given us in Jesus. Make us like him. Amen. Would you stand with me for our benediction? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all, that we ask or think or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Our prayer team will be down in front. They would love to pray with you.